The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Hello and welcome to Health Ads Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lin. Associate Professor Paul Griffin explains recent COVID developments that are crucial to your practice. The BA2 subvariant is growing in significance and although not more severe, it is more contagious and thus we may end up with more in hospital. We will explore the practical implications of the BA2 spike, such as reactivating mask requirements and other measures. Hi, Paul Griffin's my name, and I'm the Director of Infectious Diseases at the MARTA, Medical Director and Principal Investigator at Nucleus Network, and one of the Directors and Scientific Advisory Board members for the Immunisation Coalition. And it's my pleasure today to give you an update on COVID-19. Now, of course, it's a rapidly changing landscape. So what I'm going to talk about today is hopefully accurate as it stands at the moment, but of course, subject to change at short notice. I have a few potentially relevant disclosures. I've been the principal investigator on seven COVID-19 vaccine studies and do some speaking and advisory board work for a number of companies involved in COVID therapies and vaccines. But the content today is of course all my own. And what I thought I'd talk about is picking some of the most relevant topics right now, including an update on case numbers, a bit of a chat on variants, an update on vaccinations, including, of course, the winter booster that we've recently heard announced. And then I'll round out by talking about some therapies, which again is quickly evolving in terms of COVID. So the case numbers, I think this audience comes as no surprise, uh, certainly on the increase. And one of the things we get uh, asked about a lot with respect to that is why are vaccinated people still getting infected? And I think when you're counselling people about their vaccines, their booster or their winter booster, I think it's important to have an understanding of this. So we know our vaccines are still highly effective, particularly if people are fully vaccinated. And that does reduce your chance to a degree of getting infected. Of course, they work particularly well at reducing severe disease. What we now have in our population, very thankfully, is a population that's very highly vaccinated. So over 95% of the population is vaccinated. And while we know those people are less likely to get it, less likely to pass it on, and much less likely to get sick, they still can get infected. And so because the bulk of our population is now vaccinated, more cases are actually occurring in those that are vaccinated than unvaccinated. But again, doesn't mean our vaccines don't work, just reflects that the bulk of our population is now vaccinated 
and the outcome of each of those infections is improved by those people being vaccinated. So I think a good thing just to have a handle on in terms of counselling people about these vaccines. And in terms of the numbers, we of course saw a big peak at the start of the year. Cases declined and then on the increase again. And this is fairly similar across the country. Slightly different rates, but a really big increase in recent times. And I'll, I'll talk about some of the reasons for that in a moment. But one thing that's been really reassuring, so far at least, is what's been described as decoupling. So we've seen not the same increase in the severe consequences of these infections as we've seen in terms of case numbers going up. So deaths, for example, and other metrics that are really important in terms of severe disease haven't risen to the same degree as those case numbers. And again, I'll talk about that in a moment. And if we look at where the, the bulk of our cases have been by age and sex, while we know that risk factors for severe disease include those that are elderly, fortunately, they don't comprise the bulk of our cases at the moment. We see a lot of cases in those 20 to 29 years of age, both in males and females, relating probably to some of the activities they undertake, as well as their perception of risk and their, their probability of taking mitigation strategies to reduce that. And in more recent times, particularly with Omicron, we've seen case numbers in those younger children escalate significantly. And I'll touch on the importance of getting them vaccinated later on. And while I mentioned the decoupling, and fortunately we don't have the same increase in severe consequences as we've had previously with previous waves and previous variants, the burden on our healthcare system is still significant. So if you look at the, the current cases in hospital, it's over 2,000, and some of those are in intensive care. So I'll, I'll touch on this point a little bit, that there's been a lot of commentary about things being mild, and I think our perception of risk has declined below where it needs to be, and that might have led to some complacency. And so it is important to point out that we are still seeing hospitalisations, and so there is the potential for a significant burden on the healthcare system. And just touching on that more, what's really clear is that that's one of the reasons we need to keep up some strategies to keep control of this virus, particularly vaccination, testing, etc., is because we don't want a sharp increase in hospitalisations and our healthcare system to be overwhelmed. And there's some modelling here, and hopefully it projects okay, where there's that dashed line at around 15% of hospital beds, where if we go past that, our ability to function as a healthcare system could be significantly compromised. And it, it, late January, early February, we did see a big spike there, so it did start to approach that, that line where we'd be concerned. So far, the rate of increase is not the same here, but of course, it certainly could potentially be. So it, it's certainly worth continuing some strategies to keep control. And so why are cases going up again? And you know, we're gonna see case numbers fluctuate on a day-to-day -day and week-to-week basis based on so many different variables. But here's some, some reasons why I think our case numbers might be going up. Of course, if we look at the virus itself, BA2 is more infectious, and I'll touch on that in more detail. We've also changed what we do to control this virus. So we've reduced a lot of our public health and social measures, reduced our mask wearing mandates, we've changed our close contact definitions and rules around how we handle that, and we've gotten rid of a lot of the caps on venues, for example, so, so people are allowed to interact more with fewer protective measures in place. And we've accordingly changed our behaviour as well. <clears throat> Our schools are back compared to our first wave that was predominantly BA1. We're having more large events, for example, and here's a picture of uh, the SCG from, from Friday night. A thousand goals will keep great celebration, but look at the number of people that are out there. And there's been talk that we might call that the Franklin variant when we do get some transmission arising uh, as a result of that event. People are moving around more, both uh, interstate and within states as well as overseas, so there's the prospect for more interaction. And of course, 
many parts of the country have just been subject to a terrible natural disaster in terms of flooding. So very rightly, their priorities have been elsewhere for a period of time, much less likely to stay home and wait till they're symptom-free or get tested while they're dealing with such a tragedy. So I think that has potentially contributed, at least in some parts of the country. And then we look at host factors as well. We've seen declining immunity, particularly in those at highest risk, and I guess this is where we introduce the concept of that winter booster. And we've seen waning protection as well, following infection from that prior wave. So we know people get some protection from being infect infected, sorry, but it's not absolute and it's potentially not very long-lasting, and so we might be seeing reinfections contributing to this wave. And I think perhaps most importantly, people's perception of risk was probably a little bit above where it needed to be for a long time. There was a bit of alarm and fear with this virus, and that was good in that it did drive some behavioural change. But potentially we've overdone the reassuring messages. Omicron's mild, we're past the wave. So I think people thought that we were done with this virus, and that's clearly not the case. And I think that's contributed very significantly to what we're seeing at the moment. And so just quickly touching on variants, and I think many people who are watching this will understand why they happen, but we know this virus changes randomly when it reproduces. All living cells can, can make errors when they reproduce. Humans or higher animals are very good at fixing those. If we don't, we get things like cancers and other problems. But viruses don't have the ability to fix those errors. So they make random mistakes all the time. Most of the time it means that virus isn't viable and it just goes away. But if by sheer chance it confers some properties that are favourable from the virus's perspective, so maybe it makes it more infectious or to be able to evade our protective immune response, for example, then that one can take over by, by simple selection. And that's certainly what we've seen, for example, with Omicron. More infectious, so it largely outcompetes those previous variants. And a lot of detail on this slide that's potentially not all relevant, but just to have a look at some of those properties. So we've seen a number of variants now, and people probably know we, we label them after the Greek alphabet because um, people didn't like their new variants being named after where they were discovered if you were from there. So we've had beta, gamma, delta, and now omicron. And you can see they were found you know, not that long ago, really. It was only September 2020 we first had beta, and delta uh, was only December 2020. And if you look at the properties, they've all had increased transmissibility, which you kind of expect. For, for a variant that takes over. They've all had uh, an impact on immunity, um, but very fortunately, if you look down the bottom right there, the impact on severity with Omicron is that it's reduced. It's not taken away, of course, so calling it mild, I think, is not correct, but relatively speaking, it is more mild than those variants that came before. And just to go through that in a bit more detail, um, and, and what we call these variants or subvariants is getting a bit confusing. So the original Omicron we'll call BA1, South Africa, 24th November 2021, declared a variant of concern shortly thereafter because it was confirmed it had some properties in terms of transmissibility and, and partial immune evasion. Very large number of mutations. So if we, we look at the spike protein, that's the part of the virus that uh, our vaccines target and, and our protective response if we get infected largely targets as well. So if that changes a lot, it gives it the ability to potentially evade that. And so this was probably three or four times more infectious than Delta. Some other mechanisms proposed, including the fact that it can maybe uh, multiply in the upper airway up to 70 times faster. And so we did see reduced protection from vaccination. Still good protection from severe disease, it's important to point out. But the thing is, while protection from two doses was reduced, we could restore that with that third dose. And so that's why our boosters became so important. It potentially also had a shorter incubation period. And as I said before, was less severe, but certainly not mild. Um, and did have, uh, in accordance with that, a lower rate of hospitalisations, ICU admissions 
and deaths. And then we saw the BA2 subvariant. And this has been called all sorts of things, the son of Omicron, the daughter of Omicron. So this is a subvariant, so not a variant of concern in itself. But again, this has just changed enough that it gives it some slightly uh, different properties that are proving a little bit challenging for us. First found in the Philippines and is more infectious than the first Omicron, maybe by a factor of 30 to 50%. Nothing like the difference we saw between Delta and Omicron, but more infectious than the original one. And so able to outcompete or replace that, which is what we're seeing. And we've seen a takeover in many countries, including here in Australia, with, with thoughts on, uh, on how prevalent it is here now, maybe comprising 60 or 70% of our cases in many states. But important to point out that it doesn't appear more severe than the original one at this point in time. And then a lot of discussion around Delta Cron. And I don't think this is the official name. I think this is just what it's been dubbed publicly. But this is a recombinant of Delta and Omicron. So this is where someone was likely infected with both. And they, they basically just swapped some of their genetic material, like we see a lot of viruses have the capacity to do. Most of the information is coming out of France, but it's been found in a, a number of different locations. But interestingly, it looks like there might be a few different versions of Delta Cron. The, the one that arose potentially in France and found in Denmark and the Netherlands is a bit different to the one that the USA and the UK have seen. But it's not taking over in those areas where it's been found. And we've seen Omicron and then BA2 be able to do that quite quickly, whereas Deltacron is not. Indicating, although we need a lot more information on this, whether we call it a variant or, or strain or what have you yet, but it doesn't appear to be able to outcompete yet. Um, and the emergence of new variants, recombinants, etc., is not unexpected and going to be something we're going to see, driven largely by very high rates of infection still in many parts of the world. We're very good at sequencing, so we're finding these changes well. So that's why we're hearing so much about the evolution of this virus in real time. And of course, we have vaccine rates in many parts of the world that are still well below where they need to be, single figures in some parts of the world. And the best way we can address that is by getting vaccine equity so that we give the virus less opportunity to infect people and, and create new variants and recombinants, etc. And so a lot of people ask about variant-specific boosters, and we've actually had these made for a long time. The vaccine platforms we're using are described by many as plug-and-play, so we can quite quickly put the genetic information from the virus or a new variant or subvariant into these vaccine platforms and make a new vaccine. It's part of the reason we got these vaccines so quickly. But this has also been applied to, to a lot of these variants, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, for example. And we have good ways of trialling these involving sophisticated laboratory studies. So we don't need to replicate the clinical trials. So the timelines aren't the same. We don't go back to zero. And many have said we can probably do that in eight to 10 weeks if we need to. But the important thing is we haven't needed to do this yet. So we had good protection still from Delta by focusing on the second dose. Omicron protection could be restored with that third dose. And even against BA2, people that have had their booster, their third dose, still do have good protection. So um, when we need it, um, maybe not if, but when we need it, that is something we can pivot to. And another reason we might have another booster is if we do eventually need to roll out a variant-specific one. And just to quickly touch on one way of addressing that is to come up with a variant-proof vaccine. And there's a lot of really good work in this space, not something that's close yet. One way of doing that is to target more specifically the part of the spike protein that it uses to bind to our ACE2 receptor. So rather than the whole spike protein binding to the receptor binding domain, or sorry, targeting that receptor binding domain, often referred to as RBD. And there's lots of good candidates in promising clinical trials, including a few that I'm trialling here in Brisbane, Biocosavax and the Serum Institute of India, for 
for example, but then some people would like to have a pan-coronavirus vaccine. And we've never achieved this for an endemic virus, but I have to say we've never had the momentum, the, the research activity on a viral pathogen like this before, as well as the resources and the technology that obviously helped us to get the vaccines we have already. So maybe there is reason for some optimism there. And I've just put some examples of some really promising candidates that are looking at, at doing that. Again, not close yet, but uh, watch this space. So just quickly running through vaccines. Of course, we have been very fortunate in this country to have uh, available four different vaccines based on three different platforms with very large numbers of pre-purchasing pre agreements uh, even before we had uh, a lot of the clinical trial results to, to know these vaccines would be as effective as, as they are. And just to really quickly give people a reminder on how they work, mRNA, we inject the instructions to make the spike proteins, uh, has worked tremendously well, gives a very good immune response, and the results of these vaccines have, have demonstrated that. With the viral vector vaccine, so in our case this is AstraZeneca, we put those same instructions to make the spike protein in a harmless virus to carry them where they need to go. And of course this has worked quite well, had some challenges with, with adverse events, but while they've been discussed very prominently, still remained rare. And just to quickly focus on Novavax a little bit, because that's the, uh, the newer one. Uh, so that's a, a protein or subunit vaccine. So that's where we just actually make those spike proteins in the laboratory and inject those. Now that doesn't tend to give us a strong enough uh, immune response, so we actually need to do something to that to, to make it stronger. And what we typically do is add an adjuvant, and, and that is the case with Novavax. So just to quickly go through, is it's a recombinant spike protein. It's called a nanoparticle, but that doesn't mean it's got microchips or anything in it. It just means that, that they assemble into small particles that, that look a bit like the, the virus. And then there's an adjuvant called Matrix M. And that's given us two doses, 21 days apart. One of the promising elements of this vaccine is it's stable at standard refrigeration temperatures, so it doesn't require the ultra-cold chain of the mRNA vaccines. And the reason I like telling this story a little bit is that vaccine started its clinical trial journey in Australia with, where I ran those clinical trials way back on the 26th of May 2020. Uh, and that's now approved and in use in this country. And so overall with our vaccine story, I think we've done a good job. So over 95% of the population have had one dose. Over 95% now have had two doses. And if you look at these numbers of vaccines administered, and you know, these are all freely shared on the Australian government websites, 56 million doses administered. So it's an incredible achievement. And I think it's good to have an understanding of that figure as well when people talk about adverse events, because when you give that many doses, of course, even a very rare event will occur at a rate that people will hear about them. And if we look at some, some figures around that, um, in terms of comparing, Australia was a bit slow to get started, but did a very good job towards the end of last year getting those single dose rates up and then those double dose rates up. So it is true to say we are one of the most vaccinated countries in the world, and we're seeing that in terms of our figures of outcomes from this infection as well. And just to quickly go through some milestones, that's me getting my first AstraZeneca on the 19th of March with my pasty white arm out there. But it seems like we've been doing this for a long time. We've heard so much about these vaccines, but it's actually been a, a fairly rapid journey. So 25th of January, had our first case in Australia. A year later to the day, our vaccine, first vaccine was approved in Pfizer, AstraZeneca not long thereafter. We had Alpha uh, around that same time, February 21. Our rollout commenced February 22. I think uh, our Prime Minister was the first one, potentially in that first group at least, followed by our frontline healthcare workers, aged care, expanded to vulnerable um, and uh, other healthcare worker groups at that time. 
Then we started having our challenges with adverse events, and I won't go through this in detail, but of course, TTS or VITS, um, thrombosis, thrombocytopenia syndrome, really did change how we use these vaccines, and I think uh, our regulators should be commended for how they dealt with that. Many have disagreed potentially, but they demonstrated an abundance of caution in, in changing how that vaccine was used. We had clear guidelines based on good data for pregnancy in the middle of the year. Had Delta, of course, uh, in mid-June, um, and uh, then we moved on to children. So the pictures on the right are their permission, of course, uh, and my children getting their first and second doses. So uh, we had that approval expand uh, as the, the data supported that. I'll touch on that in more detail. Um, and then we had a third dose for those who are immune suppressed, and then Omicron, which of course changed things with a successive shortening of our booster interval. And then we arrive at our fourth dose or winter booster recommendation, which I'll go through in a bit more detail. So I think it is interesting to look at our doses administered per week. A big spike there, uh, August, September. And I think that was due to some uh, good advice around vaccination, as well as potentially contributed to by, by some of the rules around that. And of course, starting to see some cases and getting a little bit over lockdowns and other strategies. Things dipped away, but then took off again, coincident with uh, rising case numbers. And I think people's perception of that risk may be changing. And it has plateaued a little bit, but of course, we're at a very highly vaccinated state to potentially explain some of that. And if we just look at the vaccines used, we had a lot of AstraZeneca, that's faded right away. Pfizer really took over, some ebbs and troughs there. Bit of Moderna coming through, and while you probably can't see it on this graph, Novavax does feature, at least in the, the March data. So we are starting to see some of that use, which is exciting. But we still have a long way to go. I think people think the vaccine story is one that's over and we've achieved what we needed to achieve, but that's clearly not the case. And I'll just pick some elements of that. If you look at our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, single dose 84, double dose 79.7%, where of course for the rest of the population or overall, we're over 95. I think that's not good enough. They're a population for a number of reasons that have some inherent vulnerabilities. So we need to do better there. If we look at residential aged care, we know this is perhaps the, the most vulnerable setting in terms of this virus. Many aged care outbreaks, often with very significant consequences. And really we should have an expectation, I think, of being close to 100 for both the residents and the staff. And while we, we've done pretty well, there's still some grey bars there on the graph on the left, which is people that aren't vaccinated in terms of residents. And on the right, if you look at workers fully vaccinated, that's pretty good, but really I'd like to think expectation there should be 100 for both. And let's talk about boosters quickly. And really this isn't as new a concept as many people are saying. I mean, we knew these vaccines worked tremendously well from the outset, but weren't expecting lifelong protection as we see with many other respiratory viruses and most other vaccines, to be honest. And so we saw antibody levels fall. There's lots of discussion around that. Didn't necessarily correlate with changes in clinical outcomes. And we know protection from severe disease probably lasts a lot longer than those antibody levels declining would, would tend to tell us. We know we measure antibodies because they're easy to measure, but they don't correlate completely with protection. Um, and then we saw the TGA approved Pfizer for a booster on the 27th of October for people 18 years and over. And at that point, six months from completion of the primary course. And as we did with the previous rollout, was for people at higher risk, whether it be occupationally, healthcare workers, for example, or risk of more severe disease. 
And then we had evolution of the other vaccines increasingly being used as boosters. So AstraZeneca was able to be used in people that couldn't have an mRNA, but officially approved as a booster on the 8th of February. Moderna approved for use as a booster on the 12th of December. And Novavax not yet officially approved as a booster, but can be used if they can't have another vaccine. And then of course with Omicron, partial immune evasion, reduced protection from two doses, but we could restore that very well with that third dose. And so we successively reduced that interval now to three months. One of the questions is what's the harm or risk or cost of doing that? Some have suggested maybe our longevity of protection by reducing that interval might be reduced, but I think we need more data on that and still think it was clearly the right decision, of course. And if you just look at uh, boosters administered per eligible population, and of course this graph has to take into account that we did change the interval, but you can see a lot more people became eligible uh, December and January and our booster rate is climbing steadily perhaps, but not really as sharply as we'd like to see with those changes in intervals. And where does Australia sit in terms of boosters per 100 people? We're kind of in the middle. So as I said, we're a highly vaccinated country, which is great, but we're not yet up there in terms of those boosters. And I think we've got some, some work to go there. Boosters moving forward, well, it's clear they're going to be regular. A lot of things will uh, determine when we use boosters. Waning immunity is one thing, but it also might be new variants or if we see a spike in cases, for example. Um, some of this might be addressed by later generation vaccines, as I alluded to earlier, but it is clear we're going to need boosters moving forward. But one thing I think we need to let people know is we're not going to recommend every three or four months for the entire population to get a booster. That wouldn't be practical or reasonable. And I think there's people that are fearful that that might be the case. So I think it's important to keep that in context. So the winter booster uh, announced uh, only a few days ago, and this is aimed to boost protection for certain groups. And those people are those that are at risk of more severe illness, but also likely to have reduced protection. And we know the elderly, their protection may not be as strong or persist as long as people who are a bit younger and have a, a better functioning immune system. But these are also people that were prioritised for their first doses, second doses and their first booster earlier. So they're likely to have had those earlier. And so they might be the ones that are looking at waning the soonest. So th these are people that are 65 and older, residential aged care or disability care uh, residents, um, people over 16 years of age with very significant immune compromise and this has been a big challenge as to how we define that so I'll quickly put up a table on the next slide and those are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are 50 years of age and older and so when are we looking at that four months or longer from the third booster dose four months from confirmed infection if that was after their booster dose and we're likely to start that in April and interestingly, that's likely to coincide with our flu vaccine rollout. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. mRNA is preferred. AstraZeneca can be used if people don't want or can't have an mRNA. And Novavax can be used if no other vaccines are considered eligible. Now, this is a really busy table. Uh, it's freely available from the TGA in a number of spots. So I won't go through it in any great detail, but just some clarity on who is significantly immune compromised, who's not likely to have responded enough to get that winter booster. This has been a real challenge for us with access to therapies or eligibility for therapies, as well as for vaccination. So there are some clarifying documents available from the TGA that I'd encourage people to have a look at to know which of their 
patient groups might be suitable for some of these things. And we've also changed the definition. So we're going to use up-to-date now. And of course, this is a framework that will support us moving forward for, for policies and procedures, etc. Uh, and, and so the, the details of that are listed there. But fully vaccinated or boosted is going to become up-to-date. And there are some definitions, as I say, about being overdue that will become more relevant in time. So just quickly to go through children. Um, the vaccine for 5 to 11s, people often ask why did it take so long and that's of course because we wanted robust data before it was approved here. Large clinical trial, high rates of efficacy published in the New England Journal of Medicine and without going through the numbers you can see placebo, uh, cases went up, uh, vaccinated, flatline, worked very well, high rates of safety and so that underpinned the approval here as well as extensive real world experience before that happened um, on the 13th of October. Um, and uh, we also then saw uh, Moderna approved for 6 to 11 years of age on the 17th of February. So relatively recently, but I can assure people done on the basis of sound clinical trials involving lots of children, 1,517, and an extensive real-world experience that confirmed the safety and efficacy in that group. And again, it's about balancing a lot of factors. Uh, I know there's a lot of people who are still cautious in this group, and we encourage people to ask good questions and to be informed before making these decisions. Some of the myths are listed here. A lot of people say COVID's mild in children. Why would I get my children vaccinated? Well, that's true. But of course, even something that, might, that rarely causes significant consequences, if the numbers are high enough, then that's something that we really should try and avoid. Um, many have talked about it'll help kids stay in school, but we know that we really shouldn't be interrupting school anyway, so that's perhaps not the best argument, but certainly gives children protection and reduces their probability of being one of those kids that does have to stay home or miss out on other things. And the clinical trials and the real world experience have confirmed it's safe. So um, I think there's enough there to be able to have a good discussion <clears throat> with um, parents and children to, to help them make the right decision. And we are struggling with the uptake here. So while our, our protection in other groups is, is quite high, 5 to 11 first dose, 52%, and second dose, 23.8%. So there's been a lot of issues, and I've, I've mentioned the challenges at the bottom there, but I think we really do need to start to improve here, and I think it's about having those discussions to help people make the right decision. I'll very quickly touch on second-generation vaccines. So the fact there's still a number of vaccines being developed doesn't mean our current vaccines aren't good or aren't good enough but they're clearly not perfect. We'd like a vaccine that had uh, a lot of these properties listed here, including blocking transmission and providing protection for longer periods. And so that's why there's a lot of really good work coming. And we'll start to see some so-called second generation vaccines probably coming through over the course of this year even, I would expect. And if we just look at the tracker, there's over 125 vaccines in clinical trials. So it's a really exciting space at the moment. And to round out, I just thought I'd quickly touch on therapies. Again, a very rapidly changing landscape. So um, probably by the time you see this, there'll be some significant changes. We've had some great monoclonal antibody therapies, including sotrovimab, uh, which was really to be given to people early who were high risk, not vaccinated potentially, or not responded to the vaccine. We've had an antiviral therapy that in our country has particularly been used for people who were hospitalised and on the more severe end of the spectrum. A lot of work using that early as an outpatient for three days. Uh, we're not yet doing that on a widespread scale, at least in this country, but uh, looking at that very carefully. And perhaps the biggest development was the availability of the oral therapies, Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, and something we can give to people before their exposure if they're not able to mount an immune response to the vaccine, a combination antibody therapy called Evusheld. 
And just to quickly touch on those antiviral tablets, a lot of people want to compare different properties. Important to point out, no head-to-head -head clinical trials have been done, and many people see this as a trade-off between efficacy and drug-drug interactions. And so Paxlovid has ritonavir in it to, to improve how it works. That's something that has a lot of drug-drug interactions. And so that drug is a bit tricky to use, challenges in uh, liver dysfunction, renal dysfunction as well, but very high rate of efficacy, 89-90%. Molnupiravir demonstrated to perhaps have a lower efficacy, again, no head-to-head -head trials done. Much easier to use, no significant drug-drug interactions, no issues with liver or kidneys. So easy to use, easy to get potentially, but maybe not as efficacious. And so that's led most people to using citrovimab as first line, Paxlovid as second, and Molnupiravir as third. But as I say, that's potentially going to change any minute. And for people that can't respond to the vaccination, uh, and that's probably around 2%, uh, and that's because their immune systems don't work due to inherent immune dysfunction or because they're on therapy to turn it down for inflammatory or, or malignant uh, reasons. We now have uh, intramuscular long-acting antibody therapy we can give to those people. Biggest challenge at the moment, I think, is finding those people who are going to derive the greatest benefit and getting this to them in a timely fashion. So do look to any of your patients to see if this is something they might be eligible for. And just to finish up, I want to touch on influenza. We've seen very low case numbers over the last few years because our mitigation strategies for COVID have been tremendously effective at controlling that as well. But what that's led to is us having a very susceptible population, low amounts of protection from uh, previous infection, low rates of vaccination, and the flu's coming back. We know the closure of our international borders was largely responsible for keeping that out. That's now not the case. So we do need people to get their flu vaccines this year. A lot of discussion about separating from COVID vaccines, but in fact, what you can do is give them at the same time in opposite arms. Lots of good work happening with combined flu and COVID vaccines, but not available yet. Um, and so flu being here with COVID is going to take a big change in how we do things. So um, rapid antigen tests don't pick up the flu at the moment. We've reduced our reliance on PCR, which is the best way of finding both viruses potentially. So we need to look at that. Um, and so what I think we need to do is to look for uh, testing for COVID and the flu when it starts to come back. We're going to need to encourage people to isolate on symptoms, um, even if they've had a negative rat, if the flu's around, and get that flu test. Uh, and of course, we need to get people their flu vaccines as well, vitally important this year. So just to quickly wrap up, we've seen cases taking off for a number of reasons. Fortunately, not with the same rate of increased severe disease that we might have seen in the past. Got a lot of good uh, vaccines that are safe and effective. Uh, we've done a really good job on that front, but we still need to focus on boosters, children, vulnerable groups, for example. Lots of new vaccines coming through that will help, um, but a bit early to rely on those yet, of course. And while we do have uh, therapies and uh, antibodies, for example, none of those are designed to replace vaccination, but as an additional tool, they're going to work tremendously well, such that if we just have the right perception of risk that we do get people vaccinated, we do get them testing so we can link them into access with these medicines, then I think we should expect a high level of control, relatively speaking, moving forward. And I'll leave it there. Thank you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points, 
and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.